Afternoon, uh, my name is Tim, one of the elders here, and we'll be uh, finishing up, finally, Luke chapter 9 uh, tonight. So if you could turn there with me, we'll be in Luke chapter 9, verse 57, and once you turn there, if you could stand for the reading of God's Word. We read, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, in today's world, um, there's a lot of confusion over the definition of words. Words that used to have a clear, unique meaning now are presented as, as gray or maybe variable. Uh, what is marriage? What is a man? What is a woman? Um, with such lack of clarity, um, each individual often gets to define what the word means to them. It's like a linguistic buffet. Uh, they can choose, all right, this definition suits my needs here, or I'll ignore that part of the definition during other instances. Um, we often hear someone say, well, that's just your understanding, or I interpret that differently. Each person gets to define how they want to use a word. And while that confusion has definitely increased in recent years, uh, it's not necessarily a new idea. Uh, in Alice in Wonderland, in, written in the 1800s, Alice is talking to Humpty Dumpty, and she's confused by his use of a word. And he says, I, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean. In essence, he's claiming the right that he can define words however he wants to define them. Um, Humpty Dumpty would fit in well in our day. Um, unfortunately, in a similar matter, in faith circles, we can often fall into a similar situation where we, we use biblical words so much, maybe grace or holiness or faith, that, w that we consciously or unconsciously modify the definition away from the Bible's definition to how we want to define it. And so it's very important that we understand when the Bible speaks of something, what the biblical definition of a word is. And so in our passage today, Jesus defines what the word follower or similarly disciple entails. He does this through three short interactions with men who are physically following him, and he uses that to help us define, not in a full sense, but paint a really clear picture of what the definition of a disciple actually is. And while not covering, like I said, every single aspect, he sets the bar very high. So as we go through this text, if you want a single idea to go back through to, it's what is a disciple? What is a disciple? So picking up in verse 57, we read, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So as a refresher, um, last week we marked a pivot in Luke's gospel where Jesus is now heading towards Jerusalem. And as he's told his disciples a couple times, he's headed to Jerusalem to suffer 
die, and rise again. And so along that journey, a man approaches Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now that's a pretty bold claim if you think about it. This man is saying, if you go to the ends of the earth, Jesus, even if, if no one else follows you, I'll follow you wherever you go. That's a pretty hefty commitment. And so from a worldly recruiting perspective, um, you couldn't really ask for a better recruit. He approached Jesus. He has this, this big, bold, flashy claim. Um, he seems proactive, faithful. And so the natural question that arises is, well, why would Jesus challenge him? And the reply Jesus gives helps us with the answer as he is helping the man understand the clear expectations of what a disciple entails. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So this man might have come to Jesus with an idealistic view of what following him would look like. You know, there's a misconception in that day that Jesus was a political or military uh, savior who would throw off the oppressive yoke of the Roman government and restore Israel to national glory. Uh, maybe if that's the case, this man was looking forward to a life of riches and power and uh, palaces. Or there's a potential that he just simply viewed Jesus as a rabbi or teacher and that he was committed to following him and sitting under his teaching and learning from him. And maybe he was looking forward to a life of religious zeal and knowledge and honor in the community. However, the text really doesn't give us an indication on why the man said this to Jesus, because that's not the main point of the text. The main point is Jesus' response and how he uses this interaction to teach that man and us as readers what a disciple entails. And what does that mean? He's saying the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying the comfort and worldly ease that Christ experienced is what the disciple will experience. Think about what he compares his comfort, his worldly comfort to. A fox. A fox has a whole home in the hole in the dirt. It's, it's dirty, it's uncomfortable, but, but at least it's a home. Or a bird. The birds have nests. So you can chop down a tree, the bird loses its nest. A strong storm rolls through, loses its nest. But at least it's a nest. It's a resting spot. But Christ sets his life below that type of level of worldly comfort. And we see this in Luke's gospel earlier. In chapter 8, um, he is so physically tired that unless the disciples would have wake, wouldn't have woken him up, he would have slept through an extremely strong storm in the Sea of Galilee. He was so physically tired. And in chapter 6, we read that, that him and his disciples were, were so poor that they were eligible to, to go through the fields after harvest and, and glean the leftovers simply to feed themselves. And last week, like we mentioned, he's, he's setting his face towards Jerusalem to be tortured and suffer and die. The life Christ lived was an un uncomfortable one. And anyone who follows Christ can expect the same level of comfort. It would be unnatural for Christ to live like this and then his disciples to live a life of worldly ease. No, as Jesus says elsewhere, the disciple isn't above the teacher and the slave is not above the master. So just as Christ lived, the disciple lives also. And so there's, there's a deeper reality that Jesus is getting to here beyond where we sleep. Um, he is tossing aside the idea that you can have the comfort of Christ without the affliction of Christ. Paul talks about this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, as 
We have shared abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. That all in the epistles, Paul emphasizes this point, that, that yes, we receive comfort. All spiritual blessings are ours through Jesus. But you can't have that without also the affliction of Christ. They are a package deal. You can't participate in his resurrection without also participating in his death. And so we can begin to color in Christ's definition of discipleship. And quite simply, it's one that's not about worldly ease or comfort. And this flies right in the face of of two false gospels that get proclaimed today. The first being the prosperity gospel. The gospel that promises health, wealth, and happiness if you have enough faith and you you follow God enough. Um, it, It promises material blessings so much that you won't even know what to do with it. It's all about this life and the material blessings that are supposed to come to you when you follow Christ. Second, though, there's also the sales pitch gospel. And this is a little bit more insidious because it uses verbiage that we're used to. But this gospel tries to sell us Christ. It says if you follow Christ, you will receive this worldly comfort and and peace and and joy that, that circumstances really can't touch. No matter what, you'll always feel on cloud nine. And so while the prosperity gospel tries to tell us that there's external blessing that we'll receive, the sales pitch gospel emphasizes this this internal blessing. And it has the appearance of truth, but it it misapplies these blessings that God does assuredly promise us in peace and joy, but it, it paints them all in this life. And that's what's so wrong about these false gospels. They're all about us, and they're all about the comforts that we receive in this world. The prosperity gospel advertises a life of, of riches and abundance, and the sales pitch gospel, while not maybe being material rich, um, advertises a life of internal riches or mental and emotional happiness um, that we're so chasing after during this day and age. However, a true disciple of Christ does not aim for a life of worldly ease because following Christ simply will not be easy. We will experience rejection from family and friends. We will drive less expensive cars and live in less opulent houses in order to give to the church. Our names could be dragged through the mud because we are unwilling to bend on truth. As Jesus talked about earlier in chapter 9, we must daily pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. That is not easy. And every day we'll be tempted to live for this world, to only live for this day, to follow whatever the passions of our flesh want us to follow. But we must battle that. There's a reason that Paul talks about this Christian life being a battle. He says that we are soldiers, that we put on the armor of God, that a soldier knows what he's signing up for. It is a battle. It is not easy. And so this clarification that Jesus makes is abundantly kind because it sets expectations. You see, now we are not surprised when there's trial. And while that might not take the form of of physical persecution uh, here in the West, it could take the form of losing a job or resisting the temptation to become like the culture or wanting to let our emotions dictate how we live more than God's word. And so when that is tough, When that is hard, we understand that this is not some unexpected shock to our system that makes us doubt and despair. No, this is just the life of a disciple. It's not easy. So a true disciple is not surprised when trouble comes. 
That is the expectation Christ lays out. Moving on to the second man. Let's pick it up again in uh, verse 59. We read, To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Unlike the first man who volunteered to follow Jesus, Jesus calls this man to follow him. And he immediately has a response. He, he wants to go bury his father. And now there's, there's two things that could be going on here. Um, option one is his father is truly dead and the son is going to, to bury him right now. Option two is some people believe if, if his father was actually already dead, the son wouldn't be away from him. So his father is merely close to death. Regardless, the man's response seems pretty reasonable. Uh, in fact, as far as excuses go, it, it's a pretty good one. The, the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. Um, and in our day and age, you know, honoring our parents isn't that much of a priority. In fact, dishonoring them is more and more celebrated. But in Jewish culture, this was of the utmost importance. In fact, in Old Testament law, if a son repeatedly dishonored and disobeyed his parents, he could be stoned to death. And so this excuse, maybe even above being reasonable, it would have been appropriate. They would have thought he would be in disobedience if he did not go prioritize his father. So then we ask again the question, why does Jesus respond the way he does? Is he being harsh, insensitive? And we must see that he is not. He merely sees the heart of this man. He sees the reason why he wants to go bury his father. And it is because he is trying to follow Christ on his own time in a way that is convenient to him. He's procrastinating. So, so see, we had those two options. Option one, the man's father is already dead. Well, in Jewish custom, that burial process, unlike our own, could take a year. Or option two, his father's not yet dead. In essence, he's delaying discipleship indefinitely. We don't know when his father has died. He's saying, I I'll get to it later. He's delaying the call of discipleship to a point that is convenient for him. And so Jesus calls this out in his response. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. Leave those without kingdom priorities to handle such things. Stop procrastinating. Stop choosing the things of this world over the things of me. Stop making excuses. And so Jesus isn't saying family doesn't matter, or we should ignore all worldly responsibility in the name of following him. God ordained the family. He sets families together. But he is saying we can't delay in obedience. This man's procrastination reveals that at this point, Christ is not completely Lord of his life. And so we've already talked about how Christ's definition of discipleship is not one of a worldly life of ease and comfort. And on top of that, now Jesus explains that a true disciple does not procrastinate in obeying. A true disciple does not make excuses that they will follow God more fully at a later date. Uh, Steve Lawson says, delayed obedience is no obedience. And this is so easy for us to fall into because our excuses seem justifiable. We say, I don't need to pray this week. I know it's a command, but, you know, I, I would be forcing it. I wouldn't be genuine. And I know God wants to come, us to come to him with sincerity. 
so I won't pray. Or I don't need to sacrificially love my coworker this week because I'm busy and God wants me to do good work. So I'll do that at a later date. I'll just focus on my work. It's so easy for us to take a command of God and twist it and misprioritize it to delay obedience to a later date. We, like this man, say, let me first do this or let me first do that. We are like children when their father commands them to go clean their room, say, I'll do it later. I'm going to go play with my friends. Now, from the child's perspective, the room being messy isn't going to kill them. They, they need to develop socially, right? So they have to go play with <laughs> their friends. And they, they promised their father that they'd do it at a later date. So, so what is the big deal with, with pushing it down the road? Well, at the heart level, this shows a blatant disrespect, lack of submissiveness, and a rebellious spirit against their father. The child doesn't want to obey him. They want to be in control. If it isn't something that's, that's convenient or already desirable, their request to do it later shows that they don't care to do it at all. There is no honor given to their father. And in a similar way, God calls out the priests in the book of Malachi in light of their disobedience. He says, a son honors their father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? If they were going to call God their father, there must be an honor that is given to them, given to him through their obedience. But they were calling him a father or master and dishonoring them with their conduct. So Jesus is asserting that one who understands the true nature of discipleship does not dishonor his heavenly father by procrastinating in obedience. For all their faults, the 12 disciples, when they were called, left everything to follow Jesus. They left their earthly fathers. They left their financial stability and jobs and money stands, and they went and followed him. There was a seriousness to the call that prompted a seriousness of a response. And so how quickly we respond to a situation reveals the perceived urgency of the need. If the police receive a 911 call about an attempted murder, they drop everything they're doing, ignoring what's at hand, and go try and save a life. It would be incongruent if they received that call and said, I'll get to that tomorrow. There's an urgency to the call, so there's an urgency to their response. And likewise, the call Jesus makes on his disciples is urgent. Timeliness is everything. The can can't be kicked down the road because we are to proclaim the life-saving message of the kingdom of God. It is of the utmost importance. And so like this man, we are to set our, aside our own pursuits and go and proclaim the gospel. So what is a disciple? Christ reveals that a disciple does not say, let me first. A disciple pursues obedience immediately. Now this doesn't happen perfectly, but the heart posture of someone who's truly following God is to desire obedience today, not tomorrow, a week from now, or a year from now. So next we come to the third man. Starting in uh, verse 61, we read, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, if we thought the second man had a good and reasonable excuse, uh, this third man has him beat. So how do we know this? Uh, well, well, the language here has eerie echoes of another call to discipleship moment in the Old Testament. So if you'll turn with me briefly to 2 
1 Kings 19, excuse me, 1 Kings 19. So in context, we're in the days of the kings of Judah and Israel and the days of the prophet Elijah. And this text, starting in chapter 19, verse 19, records how Elijah called Elisha to be his disciple. So again, 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 19. We read, So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the, the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So in this text, Elijah casts his cloak onto Elisha, which is symbolic of, to a call to the same ministry that Elijah has. Elijah is saying without words, follow me. And Elisha is very eager but he has one small request to make of Elijah. It's, let me go say farewell to my father and my mother first, then, then I'll come and follow you. And Elijah grants that request. Elisha goes, says goodbye, and then comes and assists Elijah. And we know from the rest of 1 Kings that it is a faithful ministry. Elijah has a faithful ministry. So then, getting back to Luke, this man's request is very similar. He simply wants to go and say farewell to those at his home. And we know that in the exact same situation, seemingly, Elijah granted that request to Elisha. He was allowed to go back to his parents and say goodbye. So if the prophet Elijah granted such a request, surely Jesus would also have to grant the request, right? I mean, you could make the argument that it was not only reasonable, but had scriptural precedent. Yet Jesus responds by saying, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus is using an agricultural analogy that we might be a little unfamiliar with to make his point. So in preparation for planting, a farmer would, would take the plow, his tool, and plow the land in straight lines back and forth in order to prepare the, the field for being, having seeds scattered. And for the Jewish audience, who were very, was very familiar with this, the concept of plowing while looking backwards would be laughable. I mean, you'd plow in not straight lines, it wouldn't be effective, it would hit rocks and, and go off course. It would be like, in our day and age, um, an Olympic 100-meter sprinter looking backwards as they ran. Uh, your, your business is to run forward as fast as possible. You, you would not look backwards. And so the ridiculousness of such a com concept is pointed. Jesus is clarifying that someone who is claiming to follow him while also looking backwards is not truly his disciple. Someone who has a divided heart is not truly his disciple. But you may claim, okay, how can Jesus do this if Elijah granted Elisha's request? Is he being unfair? And we must remember who is speaking and who Luke has labored over the past couple chapters to clarify. This is the Messiah. This is God incarnate. This is the Holy One. Elijah, while, while a prophet, was simply a man. Jesus is the creator and sustainer 
of the universe. When he calls one to follow him, there is nothing that can come in the way of that call. Jesus is establishing that because he supersedes all else, the call to be his disciple supersedes all else. And there is abundant clarity in this call. We don't have to wonder if maybe, oh, that's a special call for only a select few and we must hear a voice from heaven. No, Jesus has clearly spoken in his word. We don't need to rely on a special call. This is the call to every single person who would desire to be a disciple. There's no categories. Jesus' definition of discipleship, therefore, is comprehensive. It encompasses all areas of life. And we can't have categories of submission to Christ, as I said. And we know that in regards to maybe sex before marriage or drugs. We, 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 won't, we don't do that as, as Christians, right? But what about submitting to him in your work? What about submitting every single thought you think or word you say to the authority of Jesus? A disciple is one whose entire life is submitted to Christ. Again, this does not happen perfectly, but at a heart level, you do not persistently and willingly keep areas of your life off limits to Christ if you are to be following him. And time and time again, Jesus reiterates this in his teaching. This isn't a one-time Luke 9 thought. He says, one must give up mother and father to follow him. He confronts the rich young ruler for not being willing to to give up his idol of money um, to follow him. He teaches that you cannot have two masters. True discipleship is, as I've said, comprehensive. And this is accentuated when we see Jesus' response. Specifically, he seems to be referring back to Lot's wife when he talks about looking back. Um, You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 19, God is about to destroy the city of Sodom for its gross sins, specifically its sins of um, homosexuality, not only celebrating and allowing it, but practicing it almost from every man in the city. And so in kindness, he takes Lot, his wife, and and their kids, and he rescues them. And he's bringing them out of the city as he prepares to rain sulfur and fire onto it and the entire valley. And he says, don't look back. And yet, Lot's wife looks back and becomes a pillar of salt and dies. Now, her looking back is her looking back at her old sinful life in the city. It's this yearning or longing over the the fleshly passions, worldly desires, self-centered living that she was used to. Although God has been so kind to her to save her from the city and the punishment that she, she clearly sees, she still looks back. She still longs for her old life of sin. And so she, she takes a second and looks behind her. And that's it. And Jesus is saying that those who look longingly back at the old life are not fit for the kingdom of God. Disciples of the kingdom participate in kingdom business. They focus on the task at hand. They acknowledge that the old way of living, the old way of doing life, is over. As Paul says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Said differently, how can one call themselves a disciple of light while also participating in the deeds of darkness? A disciple cannot claim to be putting their hand to the plow and also looking behind them, savoring a life of sin. There's a clear, distinct break between the old life and the new life. And such is a good summary for the Christian life. In parallel, two things happen. 
First, a believer does not look back. They don't look back at their old life of sin. They actually fight against it. That their old way of doing things, even if it was good, God-glorifying things, is reprioritized according to God's word. And if it is not God-glorifying, there is an intentional focus on eliminating and killing that sin in the life of a disciple. So the idea that life is, is all about us, we don't believe that anymore. We leave that behind. The idea that singleness is a burden or that our spouse is, is supposed to fulfill us, we don't operate under that worldview. The belief that this world is all there is and there's no eternity, that no longer defines our behavior. And we could go on and on with examples, but the active rejection of this is called the mortification or the killing of the flesh. There's an active intentional pursuit of rejecting the old way we used to sin. Second, and again in parallel, there's a pursuit of loving and obeying God. We put our hand to the plow and get after the business of the kingdom. And this is a reason why we are saved. We are saved to to move from lawlessness to be zealous for good works, to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us, not for impurity, but for holiness. The disciple thinks about how to please the Lord, not the flesh. And again, there's an intentionality here. Just as a farmer focuses on the task of plowing, the disciple focuses on the task of obeying God. This is the the vivification or the life in the spirit. It is us becoming more and more conformed to the image of our Savior. It is the new creation, someone who's not enslaved to sin, but actually enslaved to righteousness, shining forth. So our Lord doesn't leave much wiggle room when defining discipleship. It's, it's not a life of ease. It's not a life in which we choose when to obey on our own time. It's not a life where we can have half our heart going after the Lord while half our heart is going after the things of this world. Following Christ takes priority in every single area of our life. And this, this should feel weighty. Um, this should cause each of us to, to pause and think, are we accepting Christ's definition of discipleship, or are we making up our own? Yet, if we take this too far, it can go from weighty to crushing. And this stems from a a belief that we must somehow meet these standards in order to become a disciple and to be in Christ. Well, if that was the truth, then if we failed in one category, if we messed up once, if we took one glance back, well, we would be like Lot's wife, dead. No, no, this, this call to discipleship isn't one that merits us God's affection. It is simply one whom Christ has called acts. It's simply who we are. There is only one man in all of history who has put his hand to the plow and not looked back. There's only one man that for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. There's only one man that set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem to suffer and die on our behalf. And that man is Jesus Christ. We are not to play his role. We are not to think that our failure to meet this high call means that we are not adopted sons and daughters. Yes, we fail every day, but Christ's life, death, and resurrection, his faithfulness, he being the true disciple, covers over the punishment that results. God creates disciples out of rebels. He doesn't wait for rebels to become good enough. Think about the life of Peter. Well, not all bad. This is a man that let the waves and the wind overcome him, his focus, and sank in the sea. 
This is a man who was indirectly called Satan by Jesus for his gross misunderstanding. This is a man that had to be corrected by Paul after Christ's resurrection for not standing firm in the gospel. And on top of all that, this is a man who, despite being told directly by Jesus beforehand that he would deny him three times, denied his Lord three times. He was a scared, misguided, fearful man, and he did not listen to his Lord many times. What hope was there for such a man as Peter to be a disciple? And yet he became the leader of the church, preached the first sermon in which, through which 3,000 souls were saved, and he was the first to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And at the end of his life, having been told directly by Christ beforehand what would happen, we believe that he was crucified upside down on a cross, being unwilling to deny his Lord again for the sake of his own life. Now, why? Quite simply, simply because Jesus called him, helped him, and equipped him. Knowing all of Peter's failures, Jesus promised to pray for him that his faith would not fail. The call of Christ on his life kept Peter faithful and transformed him from a dead man into a disciple. And Christ does the same thing for us today. He is interceding for us, praying for us, sanctifying us by his spirit, transforming us into his image. And this provides immense comfort to the believer, knowing that Christ actually creates in us the type of discipleship that he requires. As Martin Luther said, the love of God does not find, it creates that which is pleasing to it. Now, this does not absolve us responsibility, and this will not happen perfectly, but we can run with confidence at the call to discipleship, knowing that it is Christ in us, keeping us and transforming us into faithful followers. Now, that being said, that doesn't negate the fact that there is a cost. Mortifying the flesh, pursuing holiness, abandoning the pursuit of comfort are not things that come naturally to us. But however tempting it is to let the cost turn us away from obedience, we need to remember that all the world can offer us are temporal, empty things. You see, one of the worst parts of this third man's excuse is that he's insinuating that he is somehow missing out by going to follow Christ. It's like a soldier going off to war, saying farewell to his family. He's leaving what is better, his family, to go to what is worse, which is the war. And that is such an, a false statement as we consider discipleship. We are leaving what is worse, which is our old life of sin, to go to what is better, which is a life of pursuing God. We are not missing out, and we can't accept the lie that the world tries to tell us that we are somehow missing out by following God. Nothing the world offers can compare to even the slightest blessing from God. Additionally, there are no empty, dead, worthless pursuits for the disciple. This mission actually matters because it has eternal repercussions. I think we all, whether in work or school, um, can think of, of projects that, that had no purpose, that had no lasting value. They were just for the grade. And it was, it was dead work. It was worthless work. We didn't want to do it. Or, or for, for in our jobs, we all know people either in this room or ourselves that dread going to work because they see how it has no impact on society. It is, it is draining, life-sucking. It's pointless. On the other hand, we all remember times when, even if it's challenging, our work mattered. 
we, we, we delighted to go to work because we could see the reason behind it. It gives us vigor and life as we, we see the impact that it'll make long term. The meaningful end result leads to joyfully doing the work at the present. And such is the difference between the disciple of the world and the disciple of Christ. The world's work, in all its false promises and empty glory, ends up killing the one that does that work. However, this is the opposite for the follower of Christ. We get to participate in the mission, the mission of God to reconcile those whom he's called back to himself, the mission of God to create a new humanity, no longer of Adam, but of Christ out of the old. We get to participate in a mission that can't have its impact measured because it's eternal. What greater purpose, what greater way of life could there be than to work for the creator of the universe and our loving savior? On top of this, as if there could be more, we know what our reward is ahead of time. And our reward is Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone. For all eternity, our eyes will be open to the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us. We will get to be so close to his presence, we don't even need a son. Sin will not be there anymore. That is what we have to look forward to. And so, in light of such great promises and such a worthwhile mission, we can run with obedience during the short time we are here on earth. Christ has not saved us for eternity with him to spend all our time living for ourselves in the present. So we can ask ourselves the question again, are we accepting Christ's definition of discipleship? Or like Humpty Dumpty, are we making up our own? The last thing I'll say is, is, is we think of this high call, there are two negative responses. Uh, the first is a response driven by guilt. Thinking of all our failings, we just, just want to absolve ourselves of guilt. And so we'll just, we'll just try harder on our own power because we don't want to be confronted with all our failings. We want to avoid that. Second, we want to avoid this, this quick fix response. That we say, oh, by tomorrow, I'm going to fix all 10 areas of my life I feel like I'm falling short of. And that won't work either. While it might produce short-term results, those will quickly fade away because it is not a heart-level change. Instead, we are to just put our hand to the plow. Yes, that requires intentionality, focus, and probably sacrifice. But by nature of the analogy, plowing is slow, it's a tough job, and it requires consistency. It doesn't involve a mountaintop experience or a quick fix. It simply involves the farmer picking up his tool and going to work. Likewise, as disciples, let's wake up on a daily basis and simply go to work. Focus on Christ, get in his word, kill sin, all by the power of the Spirit asking God for consistency to follow him. And as the weeks, months, years go by, God in his grace works in our heart, conforming us to the image of his son. So we have the call, an eternal mission, and a perfect savior. We can all pick up our plow and not look back. Let's pray. Father, uh, Thank you that you are unbelievably jealous for the heart of your people, that you have saved for yourself a bride for your son, and you will not have your bride have a divided affection. You are jealous for your bride's affection. Lord, and we thank you for that. 
because we would never love you on our own. We would never deny ourselves. We would never look to you and not to the world on our own. And yet it is your jealousy for us that saves us. It is your jealousy for us that keeps us and it is your jealousy for us that transforms us into disciples of your son. And so we thank you and praise you that you are the one that gets to boast all the way. That when we receive crowns in heaven for our work here on earth, we will toss them right back at your feet because we will recognize that none of this was from us. And so, Lord, I ask that we would leave here with two responses. First, a weight of the call, a weight of the call to discipleship, but then also a comfort knowing you are the one that creates the discipleship that you require in us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.